Hello, you lanky Daniels. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I'm going to be keeping the introduction short because I have a very special podcast for you this week. I had a conversation with Professor Anna Abraham, who is a psychologist and neuroscientist with a specific interest in researching creativity. So we sat down and spoke all about creativity, but it, this isn't just a conversation about creativity. It's a conversation about creativity with an expert in creativity. And I'm doing this podcast as part of Creative Brain Week, which kicks off in Ireland this Friday. Creative Brain Week lasts from March the 12th to the 16th, which it was founded by Professor Ian Robertson, who asked me to do this and who set me up with the chat with Anna Abramson. So if you want to find out about Creative Brain Week, go to creativebrainweek.com. But just to let you know what it is, it's a series of online and in-person events which explore and celebrate how brain science and creativity collide. I believe this is their first year doing it. And it's a pioneering event that illustrates innovation at the intersection of arts and brain science, including creative approaches to health. So... That sounds phenomenally interesting and there's lots of events. So check out creativebrainweek.com if you're around Dublin and you want to attend one of these events or if you want to attend them online. I'm very happy to be to be doing this podcast as part of Creative Brain Week because it's something I'd like to see. I'm hugely interested in creativity and I'm an artist, but I'm also massively interested in psychology. So here we have something that mixes the two. I had a fantastic conversation with Anna Abraham. Just for you to know what to expect, we spoke about what creativity is, why everybody, all humans, should explore our creativity to benefit our mental health. We spoke at length about the Beatles documentary Get Back as a model for what the creative process is. We speak about creativity and neurodiversity, and we speak at length about research into what is creative flow and how do we achieve creative flow what is the science saying about how to achieve creative flow if you want to find out more about Anna's work go to her website AnnaAbraham.com to find out about her work and to find out about the book she's written about her research into creativity this April Anna is running the 2022 Torrance Festival of Ideas which is an annual free online cultural festival which is open to the global community where renowned experts across diverse fields of human enterprise share their creative ideas and innovative projects with the general public. I'd like to get straight into the chat now because this was quite a long interview. We spoke for two hours. I managed to edit it down to about 90 minutes, which isn't that long as podcasts go. Like there's certain podcast interviews that can go on for four hours, but this is a 90 minute long interview. Um, which means you mightn't listen to it in one go. But if you're interested in creativity and psychology, this is the one for you. Um, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this chat and I learned so much. So here you go, my chat with Professor Anna Abraham. Anna, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast for a chat. So you're Professor Anna Abraham and you are a neuroscientist and a psychologist with a specific interest in studying creativity. That's right, yes. <laughs> and, and thank you for having me on this, sorry. You're, you're welcome. Um, 
that area for me is so I'm I'm an artist I'm a practicing artist across a few different disciplines but I'm also someone who who studied uh, psychology I was going to be a psychotherapist and this is an area I'm hugely interested in but somewhere that I, I find it quite difficult to find information about creativity creative people most of the stuff I know about is from a psychologist called uh, Donald McKinnon yeah. and his mm-hmm. studies on, on creative flow. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I found, like even when I studied as an artist in college, like the, the, not necessarily mental health, but yeah, mental health. So here's the thing. I, I'm professionally creative. And in order for me to create art and to in, in, in enter flow state regularly, I know that my self-esteem is very important. My levels of happiness are quite important. And I need to keep these things in check in order for me to create. Mm -hmm. Also, one thing I find with the art education system is art can sometimes be very, very serious. Very serious and lacking in fun and humor. And if I'm not engaged in playfulness and fun, then I'm not going to create. And yeah. there's this big gulf I find between, uh, we'll say, psychology and art education. So I can't wait to have this chat. First question I have for you, Anna, what is, what is creative flow? That's a good first question. Um, I'm very interested in what you just said because I also uh, entered psychology in order to be a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. I went in to study creativity by looking at it from a sort of mental illness angle. Um, so everything mm-hmm. you said was quite interesting. What is creative flow? Um, flow experiences in general have a number of things in common, right? It's a sense of um, losing a sense of time and space, being mm-hmm. extremely focused being um finding something rewarding in and of itself so the experience itself is called autotelic so it feels extremely rewarding Mm -hmm. um it's a very strange sense of being somehow hyper focused but Mm -hmm. it's still effortless Mm -hmm. um and it usually occurs when there's some sort of kind of perfect balance between your abilities at that given point and the challenge that you're facing at that given point Um, Now, this is true of all flow experience, regardless of whether it's a creative or non-creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're doing something creative, um, what the state of, I know that a lot of musicians always talk about how they want to sort of reach the stage when they're jamming, right? (laughs) Creating music is fun, but somehow there's something about entering, creating music while experiencing flow that's in some ways transports you, is magical. It's that sense of transportation that people want where they feel that they're reaching inner parts of themselves that would be mm-hmm. inaccessible if you were trying to go bu- go about it consciously. And that there's something sort of revelatory and truthful about it. And so we recognize these moments as being just, you know, very special and we want to keep going there. In the case of creativity, of course, it's, it's, not, it's about creating a response or generating an idea or a, and by idea, I mean very loosely, whether it's a musical sequence or whether it's a phrase or whether it's a, any kind of expression that is novel. Ultimately, it's about originality. So it's about novelty mm-hmm. and uniqueness, unusualness to yourself, ultimately. But also with that comes a sense of being finding it extremely satisfying yeah. that you know that it's like a you get some piece of the puzzle that you didn't know could fit. 
Um, so it's a, it's a kind of very strange experience to go through. And in periods of flow, you can get there, of course, without being in a mm-hmm. flow experience. But there's something about, um, especially artists or people, even scientists who talk about revelations that come to them while experiencing flow mm-hmm. that feels... Um, particularly insightful, you know, that feels like, oh my, I've got so much further than I would normally have done. I got there like at a it was at warp speed suddenly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's something about it that in, flow in the case of creativity is very, it's always special, I think, but um, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's something that I think all creative persons, I think anyone who's trying to be creative aspires to get to that sort of experience that sort of phenomenal phenomenology of flow because um you feel very at one with yourself at that moment and so for me personally like the feeling of flow is is probably the most important thing in my life mm-hmm. even even kind of more important to, than relationships with people yeah. um like it, it's so beautiful and so intense that if I go for long periods without it, my, my mental health is impacted. And my mental health has a relationship with how often I can experience flow. And so I, I have few different types of flow. When you were speaking there about musical flow, I can achieve musical flow, but I, I feel that as a bodily flow. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's still flow, and I'm still not on this planet. It doesn't feel like I'm on this planet, and I'm still creating an ability that I couldn't do if I wasn't in flow and it feels amazing but then there's the flow that I experience if I'm if I'm writing a short story if I'm writing a, a book mm-hmm. that's what I would call for my experience of that is cognitive flow and and that's way way more intense I've I've written short stories and when I'm in full flow it literally feels like I'm sitting in a cinema watching a film that was made just for me and I'm not creating it, it's being revealed to me. And if I, I'm not religious, but if I was, I, I would genuinely believe that this is supernatural, this this is spiritual. Because sometimes I'll enter flow for about an hour, write a story, then the story is finished. And I can't believe I made it. I can't believe that I came up with those words on that page. I can't believe that that plot arrived. It feels like it already existed and I found it. That's what that's what the experience of it feels like. And it's the most beautiful feeling in the world. And I know when I create and I enter flow state, the piece of work that I've made is something that I'd be very, very happy with. And then it's frightening afterwards. Here's the thing with flow is, is flow is so intense <clears throat> that you can be scared that you'll never get it again. Mm-hmm. And then that can... Like the the biggest barrier I find to to entering flow is the fear of failure. If I'm afraid of failing, if I'm being very egotistic in my thinking, I won't enter flow. And, And the only way that I can enter flow is when I engage in play for the sake of play. Like when I was a child, I used to play with Lego. And when I'd play with Lego... I wasn't trying to make anything nice. I was simply play, doing Lego for the sake of Lego. And if I enter a creative state with that attitude, and that requires good self-esteem, good mental health, uh, sufficient rest, and most importantly, no ego and no fear of failure. Like sometimes I will literally, I'll try to fail. If I try to fail, that will 
help me enter flow better. And by which I mean, if my if I'm sitting down to create and my mind is saying that's a shit idea, that's a terrible idea, then I won't enter flow. So sometimes an idea will come into my head and my mind will go, that's a shit idea. So what I do is I try and make that shit idea work. And then what I've done is I've made the failure my friend. And all of a sudden, this terrible idea has turned into something that I'm very, very happy with because I entered flow. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, there's so much that you said there that you, know, you mentioned Donald McKinnon at the start, yeah. uh, who sort of pointed out this um, sort of distinction between the open mode and the closed mode, right? And yeah. essentially... Well, he and many others, and I suppose in, in, in modern times, the the comedian and writer John Cleese is the one who's brought this to yeah. his attention again, is that playfulness is absolutely central to, like, yes. just not taking yourself seriously is is so important in to become uninhibited is necessary for all of those associations to become wackier, zanier, take mm -hmm. you places that are unusual. You know, it's it's sort of like saying, well, if you go for a walk, you can go down the path that was created for you. And we're very, mm -hmm. you know, we're sort of trained to do so, aren't we? Like, it's, it's a civilized thing to do. And, but if you're being playful, like kids are, they run mm -hmm. into the woods and they just they do what yeah. they want. They just follow where their curiosity is. They see something, they hear something and they just go. Mm -hmm. And it leads you down. You will discover more about the forest you are trying to walk through and experience if you go off yeah. the track. Right. So um, you, you'll notice more things. But also you must have a feeling of safety. Yes. Yes, that's true. Right. So um, and so it's. The thing about flow that's kind of, for one thing, you have to feel safe in your in yourself, for one mm -hmm. thing, in terms of where your mind will lead you. You have to f sort of feel convinced about your process, you know, that mm -hmm. I will, I don't know, shut myself off from the world for an hour or two. Yeah. Um, and do what you said about letting go of your ego, but that's probably the most critical thing because, and especially, and I wonder really if it's worse now when we're in an age where everyone's sort of, showing and telling everything, right? This this sort of yeah. uh, um, emphasis is there. And it's very hard to say, well, do it for its own sake, you know? So when, this is the hardest thing to even when people come to, you know, people like myself to say, mm -hmm. well, how do you become more creative? And part of it is just saying, well, you have to do things that are not necessarily useful. You have to mm -hmm. learn to not we've just sort of brought up to think of our time as a resource that is precious yes. that you don't waste that um, everything is in measurable quantifiable terms you know and yeah. um it's very hard to break away from that and say just tr sit down and try to get bored um yeah. <laughs> don't look at your phone um do something aimless push yourself to a point where you're actually you know, you go past being this insecurity of saying, oh, my God, am I being absolutely useless here to really saying, screw that. I Yes, yeah. I'm enjoying this and I'm allowing my it's almost like saying, well, you, you fit yourself in a bottle and you start to sort of push against it. And you think, oh, my gosh, this is getting really tight here. I, I should go back to my tiny size again. But then you break away from the bottle and suddenly you think, oh, this is all of my own making. Um, th there's real power in understanding the constraints Constraints are important. It gives you safety. Tells to be able to bend the rules is an important thing to get to new spaces. 
Um, but we also have to recognize the constraints we put on ourselves, right? That we think, well, I can't create time for something or I only have one minute here or I need to do things that earn me money or yes. wh- whatever it is. And all of those things are sort of a damper on well-being. Um, there's this great paper I came across recently by Amy Isham and I think Tim Jackson. And they focused on... Um, essentially they talk about flow and all of the activities you can do to experience flow, um, high degree of flow with very low sort of uh, environmentally impactful sort of uh, things that don't cost much and don't impact the environment much. And they essentially argue against the fact of materialism essentially puts a real damper on our ability to experience flow and how we can claim flow back um, it's, it's important to have flow in order to have well-being. It's important to flow. It's not just doesn't. It's not as simple as making you feel better. It gives you a sense of the power that lies within you, right? There's very mm-hmm. there's very few other instances where you can really feel how strong you are or how capable you are, right? In your daily mm-hmm. life, it's just sort of things that are surprising to you. Like and daydreaming when we were kids. Like when yeah. we were kids, we used to do a hell of a lot more daydreaming than we do as an adult. And that yeah. daydreaming was very important to just feeling good. Yes. And I think there's, it's impossible to daydream now, if you think about it. Like, so yeah. when... Because you take out your phone. You're taking out your phone. So I think I think we I speak to like my colleagues about this, you know, as someone who teaches at university. And very often what we're trying to do in a classroom is very different from when I was a student in classroom when there were no phones around, right? Because Mm -hmm. ultimately, if a lecturer was boring, (laughs) you would either decide to, you know, you had to either focus and do something like doodling or you'd you'd focus and take notes. If that didn't work, you'd start to doodle. Or if me, I would generally just go into this fantasy realm, right? In my head, like stare at the person and just zone out. And that's flow. That's yeah, yeah, and it's it's just nice. It just you're just off in an imaginative space, really. Um, whereas now, I think the first thing is to look at your, you know, it's 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 what what happens is that all our distractions now push us to being very present, focused, um, and it doesn't really sort of allow you to know how to deal with boredom. Because part of knowing how to deal with boredom, is, and if you're left with your own thoughts, is that you think about. Um, things that are in your own mind and not somebody else's yeah. mind, right? So if you're going on the on your phone and you're looking at, oh, what's somebody saying on Twitter or whatever it might be, you know, that you're looking at, it's typically what other people are saying and doing yes. and thinking. Um, it's a very, it's a very different time now, right? So And it's that the, the closed, like we were speaking there about Donald McKinnon said that we have our closed mode of thinking and the open yeah. mode of thinking. And the closed mode of thinking is what we use to socialize, to buy our food, to just integrate with other people and social media is very much a closed way of thinking because you're consistently reacting against other people's opinions and then evaluating yourself so if you look at social media you can see you know someone else has something that I don't have and then I go I wonder should I have that thing or Hmm. I'll see someone who's doing better than I'm doing and I wonder should I be doing as good as they are and all of these thoughts are so far removed from where I need to be to be creative and to be creative I need yeah. to be open and to be open means the ego isn't present and I'm playing for the sake of play there's think, very little playfulness on social media that's true there's no I see very little play there but also I think the importance of 
coming to your own sort of impressions, right? I mean, it's very hard when you have social media because let's think about, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago when you watch something like the news, right? It mm-hmm. would be perhaps once or twice a day. You might listen on the radio or watch television, yeah. depending on that. And you just read what was being served to you. And you had time to cultivate your own opinion. You didn't, yes. you might hear perhaps what your parents thought of it if they were, if you were kind of in a vocal family. But even then, not necessarily, but you were sort of, you know, mulling over what you had just yes. heard and read or read or saw, um, devoid of anybody else's sort of speaking voice. And so yeah. by the time, I, I think those sorts of things, the, the fact that it kind of strengthens your own mental, your muscles in a sense, to think for yourself and yeah. to form your own opinions or to question. Whereas he, I think the problem a lot with social media is, I think it's great to have a lot of the opinion. For one thing, you get, you, you have a wider access to the world and all the worldviews there. But also you don't have very really much time for reflection because yes. you in your own reflection, your own personal, individual way of looking at things. Because um, within seconds, you look at the comments. You look at the comments within absolutely. seconds. Absolutely, and it could be from no people time. you. <laughs> it could be from people you despise and people you love. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. And very often, our feeds or whatever you might be using there are very tailored to people. Most people are not trying to be heterogeneous in their sampling of the world around them. Mm-hmm. They tend to be very homogeneous. They tend to be friends with people, you know, try to follow people they like, um, listen to opinions that they agree with and so on. And so it becomes, it's a kind of has a bit of a devastating effect, I think, on your ability to imagine and your ability to think even logically in many ways, not just imaginatively and playfully or creatively, um, but also in a critical, logical way, which is the other side, the closed mode side, which is also essential to the creative process. Um, And that is also equally being compromised. And I don't think that gets as much notice because the obvious impact on playfulness and creativity is, is plain to see But the other side is that we're not, we're not, we're not cognitively pushing ourselves in ways that we had to perhaps early on because there was less information you had to seek out stuff more um you suddenly didn't have a hundred opinions thrown at you or what you've you know and so i think you we had to evolve the it does have an, an impact on the way thinking evolves in general and it's interesting what you said there where you, where you said that so we've lost the capacity to so let's just say it's the 90s you see a news story you don't have to listen to many opinions you have time to think about that news story or whatever all day long in the open mode of thinking via daydreaming or boredom. And then you can enter the closed mode of thinking mm. and engage criticality and form opinions. And that's that's really important. Uh, the closed mode of thinking, it has its place. Like what I refer to it as is if I'm writing a short story, I write with fire in my veins and I edit with ice in my veins. Mm-hmm. So the process of creativity is crazy. There's no rules. I'm there to have fun. I'm not judgmental. All I want is 2,000 words. But then tomorrow, once I have those 2,000 words, then I don't want to use my open mode of thinking. I want to go back to those words with a critical, closed way of thinking. And in my closed way of thinking, that's where I, I bring in things that I've learned from the past. I bring in skill. I bring in criticality. I'm a bit harder on myself, but these things are only helpful the day after. Yeah. I mean, the closed mode really 
deserves a lot of praise. Um, I think it's because it's less magical <laughs> in some ways yeah. that it gets a short shrift. But editing is so it's the refining of an idea can make yeah. all the difference in for you know it's part of the satisfying moment of it's not just satisfying to you, but it's going to be satisfying to the larger collective, and that really yeah. enters in only at the point of the close mode and this this revision aspect of it all that you realize oh this is a good idea but i need to go back to the drawing board because i think i can do better yeah. and or the 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 finessing of it is you know like we just you know we the, it, it's sort of so important to the process of uh, the aesthetic experience of anything that we do right whether it's creating music or writing or uh, coming mm -hmm. up with a theory so i think the close mode deserves a, a yeah. lot of you there for sure um because it's, it's when you it, polish the rough diamond that you found the day because, before and it's really about looking at it from how is someone else going to look at this you know yeah how do i reach out to my audience it's not enough that i'm having a frolicking great time you know yeah uh, having these ideas also i kind of want other people to enjoy it and that might need mean tweaking it in specific ways um and so that's why the editing process is so is so creative in and of itself it's creative but if if i think of an audience while i'm trying to enter flow i'm fucked yeah no <laughs> that's it and, and immediately that uh, like it that's when i begin to self-flagellate and that's mm. when i i like a big fear that a lot of creative people have is you enter flow once and then you feel it's never going to happen again. And then when you try and do it again, you go, that's it. I'm actually not creative. It was just a fluke. And then you beat yourself up. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you about block, creative block later. But one thing I want to pick up on. So when you were speaking there about um, how the modern social media environment has uh, put barriers up for us to engage in um, kind of a reflective a solitary reflectiveness you're not just speaking there about artists or creative people you're speaking about the benefit of daydreaming or flow for yeah. all human beings Absolutely. Can, can you tell me about that I think the creativity essentially is not the domain of only a few privileged or talented people mm -hmm. some people are very lucky to be born with you know clear interests and clear talents and all um, that might be in the artistic sort of spectrum of things you could do. Yeah. And then they have the right kind of guidance. So it's, it's easily recognized. And those, I would say, are mm -hmm. very for fortunate people. Um, but creativity is, for me, it's, it's more like a mindset that we have to think about as well. You know, I'm trying to, in my more recent work now, I was trying to think about creativity as more like a, more like creative health, you know. It's just mm -hmm. like, you know, we sort of devote ourselves so if you think about this a little bit in terms of physical health like we take this for granted now but before the 80s there was no huge pressure on everybody <laughs> to get fit yeah. and like it, it really took i don't know jane fonda and the aerobics movement and again yeah. i don't know enough about um these kind of western cultural trends but i'm assuming that she was the one to sort of popularize it and those and you know the coming of tv the showing of people in action combined with uh, and bodybuilding was weird. Body, like in yeah. in the in the nineteen seventies, yeah. there was this film called Pumping Iron, and it's the first film that Arnold Schwarzenegger was ever in. Oh, and right. yeah, and and he was just as a as a, a young Austrian bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. But this film about bodybuilders in nineteen seventy three in California was presented as a novelty. 
it's like, wow, isn't it so strange that there's these people in California and they're trying to grow muscles? How odd. And now this is just popular culture. It's just, yeah, God, every place has like a little protein shake shop and stuff, right? Like, I mean, yeah. essentially, yeah, but it's, it's, an, it's kind of mind boggling how quickly all of that took over. It took a visual medium first that was accessible and there in people's households. Most people could afford it, some level of it. Um, it took, uh, you know, the sports, sports to be broadcasted in very specific mm -hmm. ways and not sports as in competitive expert sports, but things that you could do at home, things that you could yeah. do with a little bit of help. Um, suddenly, you know, it wasn't just glamorous actresses and models who could be good, you know, have a certain type of fitness. Mm -hmm. It was sort of reachable for everybody. And now if you fast forward to now, I think you'd be hard pressed to find people who weren't at least aware of what fit, what means to be physically yes. fit, didn't have certain aspirations there, even if they may not always follow it and know things about nutrition, how, you know, what kind of activity burns um, yeah. calories and what doesn't and so on. And this is a very, very, very fast evolution. So this concept of physical fitness is a pretty novel one um, mm -hmm. in terms of being accessible. And I think creative, in terms of if you want creative fitness, we're nowhere near there, right? Because still creativity is seen um, in relation to the highest magnitude, right? So it's not And it's seen also not like, so creativity is valued amongst a small section of society. But if you're not an artist, it's seen as time wasting and... Yeah. Like I always think we're all born creative. Every single child plays with crayons. Every single child plays with Lego and engages in play and creativity. And then you get to about three or four years of age. You go to school and then someone puts you into the category of talented or not talented. Gosh, and then yeah. some people just stop. Yeah, I mean, so that's exactly it. So in creativity research, sort of we would distinguish between what we call magnitudes of creativity, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this very famous model called the 4C model. And you'd say, well, on the, on the lowest end of magnitude is what we call mini C creativity. And this is what children exhibit every mm -hmm. single day. And they do it through sometimes the arts, like you said, but taking crayons or lego and so on but they actually do it through their exploration of spaces they're making sense wow. of the environment they if you are around little children it's kind of crazy the way they the, the kind of things they say the kind of sense they're making of their world right or the mm -hmm. questions they ask you really show you that it's a curiosity. kind of curiosity and sort of and they would say the really zany things because mm -hmm. um that's what so i so I can give an example of my son. He when he was very young, and he was he's autistic, so he's less communicative than most kids. Mm -hmm. But he uh, so he saw that I was putting on some eyeliner, and then he said, "What?" And I said, "Eye makeup is what he would call." It. He said, "What about nose makeup?" Right? And I thought, <laughs> that's, "That's brilliant." I said, "My gosh, if you figure out how that works, we could be gazillionaires in no time." <laughs> right? But I was like, "That that's so bizarre. I've never thought." What, how could you decorate your nose, essentially? Um, but but it's, why it's, not? But why not, right? Yeah, but I, was, I mean, believe me, I did try to, like, I let him go go to town <laughs> and it looked ridiculous. But um, he had a lot of fun uh, and I did too. But essentially, it was sort of like, that's such such a child thing to say, you know? And they say it all, I mean, kids do it all the time. They're making sense of the environment and they say the most creative things and imaginative mm -hmm. things possible. And so that's kind of sort of like, the lowest magnitude and that it's very subjective it's very you know it, it's it's and that's so powerful in and of itself next level would be something what they call little c creativity and this is perhaps mm -hmm. um slightly more objective so i know for instance 
Um, I do some writing on my own time for myself. And I know, for instance, mm -hmm. that the poem I'm, I wrote yesterday is probably better <laughs> than the poem I wrote, I don't know, two years ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this is when you have some sort of level of, so it's a little bit, it's quite different from what a little baby or a little child does. So there's a little bit of objectivity there. And that's mm -hmm. also um, valuable and powerful to me because it gives me... So there's criticality there. There's some criticality there, at least um, a more, no, I wouldn't say criticality as much as an evolution that you're aware of, okay. of your own abilities, right? So mm -hmm. I know, for instance, now ah, I'm a yes. much better cook today than I was when I was 20. And that's because I just have more experience. I'm more experimental and trying things, you know. So it's an awareness, an awareness of here's a thing that I've been rewarded in the past. I think I'm good at this. I would like to get better. Yeah. And also, I like to surprise people. I like to like surprise yeah. myself even. And that I, oh, I know how th sort of different ingredients can be put together to, to develop a sort of interesting taste. And so it's more like an evolution of your own skills that may or may not be associated with external recognition. Right. So in schools, they have like competitions, especially arts based competitions or science based competitions that try and reward this a little bit. But it doesn't have to be something that hasn't is associated with external sort of incentives. Um, and the third level would be the proce, I think it's called professional creativity. This is mm -hmm. essentially the level to which um, a lot of people who have recognized, you know, have recognized that they have talent or other people have recognized it for them and decide to pursue it as more than just a hobby at some mm -hmm. level or degree of professionalism. Um, so these might be the kids who end up going to art school, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. And the final level is what's called big C creativity. And these are people who reach, let's say, the pinnacle of creative achievement and that their ideas change the world mm -hmm. right? and not every artist's ideas change the world right no not every mm -hmm. idea out there will persuade you to change your taste in music or will yeah. or um writing practices and so on so it's important to think that if when people at, at the moment what i would say is when people most people when they think of creativity are thinking of just the highest or the highest two levels of magnitude mainly which is professional or big C, if you want, levels of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, but it all starts, you can't get there without starting from, you know, the rudimentary levels of um, creative thinking and sort of creative discovery that starts with the little mini C with, with the children and all the way up. So when I think about creative health, it's almost like when I think, well, none of see for me i i will try to maintain my fitness a little bit doing a little bit of running i like to run for instance i know mm -hmm. that i'm not going to be a pro a pro or a, you know or even an i'm not going to be an usain bolt or a serena williams right yeah. but that doesn't mean i don't invest in my physical fitness because i have a body i have uh, the capacity to move and my physical fitness is not just about getting good at uh, being the fastest or the best it's about maintaining um you know my physical health it's about all of the other benefits and it feels like it feels amazing like i run too and the reason that i run i i'm not i literally own i run because it feels incredible and this is a wonderful thing that i do every day and when i run a lot this is one of the things that helps me to be creative that puts me in a position to do it and that's a wonderful um, argument you're putting forward there where w lots of people run and lots of people run with zero expectation of becoming professional runners. Absolutely. So why don't we all engage in one of those seas of creativity? Now, the other question I'd have for you is like, what is the, the benefit to the, the human being 
who would engage in some degree of creativity in their daily life? There's so many. Um, first is having a sense of, sorry, developing a sense of mastery in something, right? So let's take, it can be anything. It can be something that's avowedly creative, like, you know, a, a learning how to paint or something, um, mm-hmm. learning how to, it's trying your hand at writing poems or um, cooking, any, anything you want it to mm-hmm. be, really. That it's just important that it, it's a little bit open-ended, so there's room mm-hmm. for discovery and room for growth. And I think, so one is, of course, just learning about yourself and your own skills. That's enormously powerful for people to have some ownership. You know, there's very, there's very few of us who have complete ownership of what everything you do in your life in some ways. I mean, I mean, how many mm-hmm. of us really do that? But most of us work for some establishment. You know, we do have to cater to specific role, rules and roles that that particular job requires and so on. Um, with with the, the advantage of creative pursuits is that you're kind of your own, I don't want to say your own boss, but mm-hmm. essentially it's all about what, you know, I want to do in the moment, what I enjoy doing in the moment. And it's it's really a process of self-discovery in a sense. Personal meaning. It's personal meaning. What I always find yeah. is, is meaning. I mean, a yeah. sense of having meaning and purpose because quite a lot of people don't get meaning and purpose from their work. They don't. Quite a lot of people yeah. work jobs and these jobs are so that they can live and survive. Yeah. And I always encourage people to try and find anything creative to do as a way to find personal meaning. Here's the thing I love doing. Yes. There's no results from it. Exactly. I don't make money from it. Exactly. But I'm making space to discover who I am and what I like. Yeah. And this then, I find it has a, be- a very beneficial, imp- uh, a beneficial uh, impact on our sense of self-worth. Absolutely. Because if you have a sense of meaning, then you understand, you understand what you know, what you like, you know what your boundaries are, you know who you are. You, you understand yourself better and you yeah. it's 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 interesting that you're sort of casting a lens on yourself in a sort of really reflective, generous, warm, open minded capacity in a way that nobody else can do it for you. You know, um, mm-hmm. you see yourself progressing um, and not I, maybe progressing is not the way, but the evolution of your skills, the way that you think the you experience flow kind of mm-hmm. effortlessly while you do it. There is yeah. no one who enters into those spaces of just trying out something and that comes out of it and says, oh, this was awful. <laughs> you know, it's it yeah. never happens because if you're not doing it in order to earn money or if you're not doing it with sort of a productive goal at the end, you know, you're just messing about and you're having fun. And that's yeah. and that's enormously that is enormously rewarding to know that you granted yourself that generosity and that it produced something that at least makes you smile, you know, gave, gave you a sense. Yeah. I didn't know I had this in me because some, like you mentioned when you write, you'd sometimes think, I didn't know I had that in me. Like it, it just came yeah. out the way it did. And that is a, a process of like self revelation there is enormously powerful. It makes you feel a, a strong sense of autonomy. It makes you feel more in control and not control in a bad way, but just sort of like less, you know, uh, moving around with the winds of change as much. Like, you know, this is me. This is where I'm solidly anchored. I can do this. Is is it an enormously powerful thing to have? We're going to take a slight break from the conversation with Anna Abraham now so that we can have a pause. This week we're going to have... I have a little jaw harp, which is an instrument that you, you 
put into your mouth and you play. So let's hear, have a jaw harp pause. And when I do this, you'll hear an advertisement for something. I don't know what it is. So here's the jaw harp pause. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fell out of my mouth. Nice conclusion. That was the jaw harp pause. I hope you had a nice advertisement there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if you're listening to it regularly, if it's providing you with entertainment, please consider paying me for that work that I'm doing. And this podcast is my full time job. I'm only able to do the podcast each week because it's my full time job. I love the work. But please consider paying me for that work if, if you're enjoying it and you're consuming it. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford that, you know, you might be out of work, whatever. Don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who's paying me for my work is also li- paying for you to listen for free. It's a lovely model that's based on kindness and soundness. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. What more could you want? So thank you so much to all my patrons. Also, becoming a patron keeps this podcast independent. I get to speak about whatever I want to speak about. I get to make podcasts that I'm passionate about. I get to put out content that I really want to put out and to be happy with the work that I'm making. And podcasting is becoming very commercialized. There's a lot of money being pumped in from big brands. Large podcasts that have celebrities hosting them are taking over the podcast space. So small podcasts are kind of getting inched out. And by me having this podcast independent also, it means that I can choose who advertises on this podcast. And most importantly, no advertiser can tell me what my content should be or edit my content in any way or get ask me to even ask me to change what I'm doing. Because if they do, I'll tell them to fuck off. No, you can't advertise on this podcast if you want me to adjust the content. This isn't the podcast for you. Bye bye. So patrons make that possible. So thank you to all my patrons. And also don't just support my independent podcast. Support whatever independent podcast you enjoy listening to. If you listen to a podcast with small creators, one or two people. 
you have to support these small creators monetarily or simply sharing it and talking about it if you want the podcast space to remain good, essentially. Because if we don't, and the brands take over, and the big names take over, it's not podcasting anymore. It's just shit radio with more curses. So thank you for that, and back to my chat with Professor Anna Abraham. For me, it it's sometimes the... If I experience intense flow, the peak feeling, if I could put it into words, mm. is... I feel like my existence has purpose. It's like, ah, I know why I'm alive. Everything about being alive makes sense right now. And it's to do this. And it's the most wonderful feeling. It's it's almost spiritual. I I I know why I'm alive. This it's to do this. Yeah, it's called peak experiences for that particular reason, right? It's almost like a sense of, I mean, if you look at the kind of experiences that lead to flow very often, I mean, the highest thing that you can do is the arts and crafts. Mm-hmm. Some people experience it, obviously, when they're they're engaged in praying and meditation and things like that, yes. sort of. in. You can also experience it when you're having a wonderful conversation with someone who you really gel with and are having a mm-hmm. stimulating and it's just taking you places and you know and I'm sure you've had those and, and your listeners have as well where you just think where's the time passed this has been incredible I feel rejuvenated I feel mm-hmm. like um, I have learned so much here and there's the peak experience side of it it's re- I mean, it's it's a subject of study for so long in psychology, and it's just just so so magical that it can happen in so many different situations. The reason why we think that it's really important to engage in creative pursuits, particularly nowadays as well, is that it really pushes you away from looking outward into the world that is grabbing mm-hmm. our attention all the time. Has ways of making us. I don't know anyone who looks at social media and is saying this is wonderful only, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're hoping you find something funny, but like you have to go through a lot of pain to find that one little funny thing. And you wonder, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And you feel a bit badgered by the end of it thinking, I cannot believe I spent all this time trying to find that. And then, but, and somehow just allowing your mind to heal from that experience alone by engaging in, different types of activities that, you know, allow you to engage in flow. And very often the arts and crafts are the fastest, easiest access point in order to do it. But there's, you can do it through sports as well. You know, you can do it yeah. through things like just, you know, um, appreciating nature. Some people get when they're just riding yes. a bike. It's just like clearing your mind yeah. of running. all of the clutter. Yeah, running. Running. Yeah. When you, If you get that, what, what would be referred to as the runner's high. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, you're, 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 you're not present, but you're very present all at one. And yeah. it's just fantastic and beautiful. And the runner's high is, it's similar to creative flow. You mentioned uh, meditation there. Is meditation a form of, of flow? It can be, depending. It can lead you to flow states, for sure, depending on what kind of medica- medication I was going to say meditation you do um, it's certainly um, one of the one of the many activities one can do in order to reach a flow state but so are you know so it's things like reading reading fiction mm-hmm. very oh, often yes. you know it's it's yeah. getting you know lost what in someone else's work is flow when you are absorbed in it you know that's something else but the the highest listening level listening to music listening to yeah but the the it's interesting though that the more passive your experience of 
So you can get flow experiences through very passive sort of things you can yeah. do. So for instance, uh, this might be sometimes, for instance, people playing a maybe playing video games or watching like binge watching movies or you know programs. Yes. Now this mimics in many ways the flow experience, and that it's Mimic. very stimulating. Yeah, that's the core word there. That yeah, mimics it only mimics. Yeah. I play video games, I will binge watch. It feels like flow, but I don't get all that lovely beneficial. I don't yeah. feel rejuvenated afterwards. I feel kind of drained, even though I did exit the room mentally and, and exist in something like flow state. Yeah, and I think this is what is the other side. So the flow experience is something we, you know, this one of those magical things we can experience as, as human beings. But like all good things, when something mimics many aspects of the flow state, then you're much more unlikely to engage in something that pushes you into an actual oh. flow state because that requires effort, right? Yeah. If I can what just turn drugs? on... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The same thing. drugs will yeah. give some people and, and some people will, I don't know, smoke a joint and then try to create something and they'll think it's amazing <laughs> while they're high and then afterwards they'll just go, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's very common. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean this there's some really elaborate studies in the sixties when, you know, there was still psychedelics were permitted. Um yeah. not as you know, they were they were used for a lot of there was some really excellent studies that were done. They looked at artists who were before the influence while taking it and after and you can they were doing sort of the usual work and it, there's no question that it deteriorates during the experience. There's literally yeah. and I think it was Aldous Huxley who's of course experimented greatly and was very conscious mm -hmm. about the benefits of certain aspects of taking psychedelics um, really pointed this out really well and that he said you know we have to distinguish between what is going on during the experience and how it affects you after because yes. du during the experience you're not particularly interested in doing anything yeah. <laughs> uh, productive or useful you know and that it's so what you can't actually expect much of sort of creative worth to come out of that the, the, the that physically you would produce something while you're in that state the advantages if any to glean from it from those who have good experiences and when consuming such um, substances is that for many people it it sort of changes the way they look at the world or they have had a sort of revelation in those mm -hmm. moments that that change that essentially affect the way they look at the the word from afterwards, you know. So they've had something something meaningful has clicked and changed. So it's more it's more about what they leave with the experience uh, rather than what they had during it, right? Because I think about that a lot, Anna, and and so I so I would think of something like the the music of the the Beatles in the sixties when the Beatles mm -hmm. went psychedelic. Yeah. So yes, okay, John Lennon and, and Paul McCartney took acid, but. Okay, they took acid and they saw some stuff and had some revelations on acid, but then the creativity didn't happen while they were on the acid. It happened mm -hmm. afterwards. So these are people who are already creative responding to something that happened. So if you got John Lennon and put him on a bus, something creative is going to happen <laughs> about that bus trip as much as an LSD trip. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's just, you know... Um was it Rilke? It's this great quote where he says, don't, you know, you shouldn't complain. And your capacity to be a poet has to do with the way you look at the world. So the, mm -hmm. if you can't be a poet in your surrounding, it means that you don't, you know, the, the, 
you're unable to capture how gorgeous the world is. Um, mm-hmm. It's your powers have, that have failed you. It's not the world that has failed you, right? And I think it's absolutely true that anyone who is... So, yes, I think Lennon would have got... I mean, it wouldn't have mattered because if you're sort of looking at the way he looked at the world and the kind of mm-hmm. music they produced, you can see that it's about a curiosity, right? A playfulness, yes. a curiosity and openness. Did you watch the, the documentary? Oh, did you yes, see the reason? I did. <laughs> like, of that course. is the most beautiful <laughs> documentary about the creative process. Yes. Because we, we, we think these songs are all oh, these very important, serious songs that change the world. And then you see how they're being created. And all it is, is it's friendship. It's friends. It's humility. Fun. Humility. Just, I was so struck by that. You know, like these are the, mm-hmm. they were rock stars, like of the highest mm-hmm. order at the point when that was being made. And I just didn't see ego. I didn't no. see, it, it, they were just trying to, make things work and they yeah. had an openness and generosity to each other and of course there were little mm-hmm. tensions they were so respectful with those tensions we were led to believe that they were fighting yeah they they all loved each other they yeah. all really loved and respected each other and even though they loved and respected each other yes they had their little bickering stuff and i know they didn't respect george harrison because he was younger than them and they couldn't stop seeing him as a 13 year old but there was love present yeah. throughout all of it just the way they looked at each other right it was just yeah. i was thinking i'm not sure if anything in the modern era would compare to this because no it was not it was you know in this uh, it was so sort of striking to to see that in action and what you could see about the creative process there is that it's a collective effort you're listening mm-hmm. to each other you're trying to you're searching for ways in which the magic can happen and it's very it's both purposeful and um, completely unplanned at the same time, right? It's sort of, it's it, that was so magical about that process and that it was sort of, it, it took you both spaces and you told you that they were they were really capable of like, holding out till the end, till they absolutely had to. Yeah, You know, that's a really important marker for creativity at the highest level, that you don't try to do things very quickly as fast as possible to meet some deadlines, but you hold out till you, you're sure that this is the this is the best you could do in that situation. And you know what Paul McCartney said recently about that exact thing you're you're mentioning. So Paul McCartney was complaining about having an iPhone. So Paul McCartney was saying, like recently, I have an iPhone now. So if an idea for a song comes into my head, I just shout it into my iPhone and I forget about it and I never return. But in the olden days, me and John Lennon, if we had an idea for a song, we literally had to do it there and then. And he said even before that, the the most important part of their creativity when Lennon and McCartney weren't even famous, so they had no access to recording equipment, they, the only song, if they wrote a song together in their bedroom and they might write six a day, only the one that was the catchiest was the one they, that they would remember, which I thought was beautiful. Because they had no way to record it. That's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Isn't it just incredible? It is just incredible. And it's just, I, I just love how they sort of fed off each other's the best, you know, I, I, the, what they were able to produce together, I, they were. I think they were able to sort of bring out the bre- best in each other, right? That was just mm-hmm. sort of that kind of tells you how the constraints and the of of the time, like you're saying, of the situation mm-hmm. that they had, and how they sort of intelligently dealt with it to bring out, you know, um, to use their own minds to sort of think, okay, let's go with this particular tactic. I, I, I wonder if they were, either of them were alone that if they would think to do that, if, if you see what I mean, like 
No, because the solo work, like yeah. you listen to their individual solo work, and yes, the, some of the songs are quite good, but they're in their solo work. It's not as strong as the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And one thing too that you see with their relationship, which I feel is very important to collaborative creativity, they had unwritten rules of delegation. So when it came to words, it was quite clear that John Lennon was the man for the words, mm-hmm. and everybody respected that. And they would use the phrase good words which I thought was beautiful yes. they didn't say poetic lyrics it was simply John Lennon saying just keep saying words just keep saying whatever word that comes into your head and then we'll figure out the good words later mm-hmm. and then when it came to the music the, the the symmetrical vibrations of air that was Paul McCartney's territory mm-hmm. and then George Harrison tried to fit in between that double relationship and there was tension and then Ringo was just like I'm a drummer I'm going to I'm going to be the backing beat and I don't interfere with what you guys have going on because I don't have it and it worked beautifully yeah because you need the tension you need the stability that Ringo was providing as well actually yeah um and you need that sort of camaraderie there the the trusted duo to come up with whatever they can but the 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 tension that I think Lennon, at least in the, in I mean, I, I haven't read that much about them, but suddenly from the documentary, it was very clear that he was very curious about everything that George yeah. had to say and was suggesting. So that is a real openness to change. So imagine you're you're yeah. doing something amazing, and then someone else comes along and says, "What well, what about this?" It does take you to be pretty egoless to allow somebody else to come in, as, as they did for um, the. Oh, who came to play the piano? And that that really lifted them up, right? Um, Billy Preston. Billy Preston, exactly. And it was a wonderful addition oh, to the yeah. relationship. And you could see all their friendships changed. As soon as Billy Preston came in, it was it was just different. Yeah, it was like they so, spiced up the relationship. They did something new. It was so new. chuffed, all four of them. Like, just, you know, just so so eager and gleeful <laughs> about him there. Um, and, and he was so happy Surely to be part Anna, of it. Yeah. In, in your field, Anna, because like we're speaking about the, this film here and surely within your field, working professionally, studying creativity, th- that film surely is something that, that people are speaking about within your field. Because to me, it's like that's a documentary about the creative process, unadulterated. It certainly is. And I would have to speak to, I haven't actually spoken to anyone in the field about it. Um, I wonder if, you know, usually things take time to filter through. A little bit. Okay. And yeah. I imagine that it's the sort of thing that um, creative researchers from the music side of um, the um, the research side would be people that would be looking at that much more closely. But you're it's it's an incredible resource because you know there's just it's very rare to find. I mean, this. I mean, we are living in an age where you get first-person narratives from so many yeah. artists that that is unprecedented, right? So you can, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's. I think there must be twenty McCartney interviews out there at different times. You know, over the past mm-hmm. ten years, for instance, and now following this one, he. But very often. It has a lot to do with who's interviewing, perhaps, and what they're trying to get mm-hmm. at, and if someone is trying to find out about their process, or if it's about um, more a sort of f- fanboy perspective, maybe. But well, there... I'll, I'll tell you specifically. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, on that. go on. Um, so specifically about that film and what you're speaking about there. So first of all, people didn't have the awareness of cameras that we have now. Right now, yeah. second of all, and this is what's this is why this film took so long to make. A huge amount of the conversations that we hear in that film mm. 
were actually artificially generated using software. So when the Beatles were speaking privately, often they would try to play their guitars quite loudly over the speech. So they put a lot of effort into not being heard or seen by the cameras all the time. Mm -hmm. So they tried to obfuscate and hide it. But Peter Jackson, the director, got like cutting edge technology. He's a wizard, yes. (laughs) Yeah, to, to cut out that guitar sound or to do this and to enhance stuff they didn't want us hearing. They didn't, they never expected that all of those conversations would end up on film. They just thought it would be the cutting room floor. Yeah. It, it was like, it's, it's, it's a film for the podcast generation. We're okay yeah. with listening to something now that's three hours long. We're okay with that or hearing an un- unedited conversation. In the 60s, that was crazy. That didn't happen. <laughs> that's true. So talk about forward thinking for the time. But yeah, you never see a, the creative process play out in the moment you never i mean there's almost nothing like that that's sort of unadulterated the interesting thing about it though and i think i was listening to i forget where to whom peter jackson was speaking with some podcast and Mm -hmm. he apparently spoke about how he presented it to mccartney to say you know i've done this thing and yeah and mccartney was a bit nervous and he said no Mm -hmm. you know what i just want to reassure you that none of you come out of this looking awful if anything it's yeah. really surprised and so he he t- pointed out how in that even the members who were there remembered it as being more negative than yeah, it was the press. yeah so it just the the insidiousness of that at some level right that you think oh, and of course directly after that there were you know breakups things just really happened but yeah. it went downhill from there and so their memory so i love that the you know, in, in psychology, I mean, I think it was Diana Kahnemann who talked about the distinction between the mem- your experience of something and your memory of it, right? And yeah. that I think he, I don't know where he came up with this. But he said, the, the, you know, your, your, your sense of the present is only nine seconds long, essentially. Your, any, wow. your, your, the, 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 the experienced present, right? So yeah. when you think about, especially in the context of creativity, don't think about engaging in it, thinking, how am I going to remember this? Because that is not a proper depiction of what really happens in that moment, right? Like, even if you think mm-hmm. about what you did yesterday, what did, you know, you might have had a hard day yesterday and you think, re- mm-hmm. kind of, re- kind of, you're not thinking about the whole two hours that you struggled. You just have little moments there. So it's just part of it is thinking your experience of something is quite different from your memory of it because mm-hmm. memory is not linear it's sort of woven in some way right it's mm-hmm. not it's the, the way you recall things is quite different and so i thought the 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 uh, that was what was really powerful about that documentary in many ways and that and it was beautiful for to be able to show to the remaining members at least that you know you you're one of the few people who have the ex- maybe not all how many ever hours of the experience but in condensed form still very long you know what the experience of that creating that was and how distinct it is from your memory of it. And now you can, it's mm-hmm. a sort of healing process, I think, to know that, oh, you know what, we were, we were that was that was a good experience. That was amazing. Uh, we were wonderful to each other. We were, um, I can't, yeah. I can't. And so I think that's kind of, it, it gave me, I have some ideas that I'm sort of mulling over about how, what that can tell us about why we can need to promote sort of creative fitness or creative health, let's say, is that part of, doing that is just like with physical fitness about in the moment what you experience is glorious and we shouldn't think about Mm -hmm. it in terms of 
what happens after that you know we put so much premium on what does this what do i what is the outcome i get out of things um mm-hmm. in a very concrete way and part of it is to really understand the experience of something that is the outcome like that what you're experiencing in the here and now that's going to be good and that's going to be and when you think about it in the aftermath you might think oh that half an hour i should have been doing yeah. x and that's a sort of and that's that's sort of thing that gets people to not do it right because they're like oh i wasted my time there i should have done this instead i should have you yeah. know and to think no actually you're then discounting what actually happened in that half hour that you that you used to um engage in that specific creative mode um so that's something to be perhaps a little more mindful of is perhaps the word you know in in and that for me as well personally um so if i write a book it takes me about a year and it's a wonderful experience yeah. and when the book ends and when it gets to publishing that's really sad i don't like that part yeah it reminds me a bit of death <laughs> it just it, it it feels that but one thing that i've found is in order to help my uh, t- to engage in flow more is i need to create because the experience of creating is the reward not the end piece yeah the actual joy of doing it and if i'm doing that and i'm in flow the end piece kind of looks after itself the end piece will be good if i'm there but and it's the same with exercise like i exercise because i enjoy exercising not because i'm trying to grow more muscles or lose weight that stuff will happen anyway but process based creativity has been something that's really beneficial to me this process is hugely enjoyable and if i do this i'm happy for the rest of the week and i have high self esteem Yeah and that's really the way to th- I think that's a good analogy to the book um writing of the book and finishing it and there's this there is a real slump point that comes when Yeah um and it somehow feels very divorced the writing process and the publishing like, is process this it? Yeah is this it and it is I think when I wrote the first thing the first ma- and it's also true if you write research articles sometimes you know by the time it gets accepted and stuff you're so beyond <laughs> once you yeah. see it it's the process has been sort of struggle but i do remember when i wrote the book that i did neuroscience of creativity it was it was quite painful to write it it was also very joyful to write it um but mm-hmm. i absolutely was n- unprepared for how divorced the actual coming yeah. out of the book would be and i thought and i thought in my head why doesn't this feel more momentous you mm-hmm. know and that's because we are so outcome focused we expect mm-hmm. to feel like perhaps as we did when we were kids if you won a race or something you got a little yeah. prize and the outcome was very close in you know physical time and space to the doing of the thing and mm-hmm. a lot of good things in life that require you know just attention in a specific way um dedication over a long period of time especially the written work now written work is really unusual mm-hmm. because it takes i've always i sort of in the recent work i sort of talked about different types of creativities and i talked about how creative writing is an essentially a, a fragile process because every aspect of it is in isolation right you have mm-hmm. the ideas in isolation you're writing it by yourself um all of that publishing stuff happens completely divorced from you when it comes mm-hmm. out people are reading it and they have to read it by them so every at every yeah. everything and it takes time at every single step it is 
an exercise in isolation in some ways, right? And it requires a lot of time and effort from everybody. It's very different if it's music because you create something and you kind of go out and play it in front of a crowd, for instance, or even just to relive that. Yeah, exactly. And they see, they feel it because the attention required for anything visual or musical is instantaneous, right? So Mm -hmm. you can, if you want someone's attention, you just click your fingers, you got it. Whereas if you're trying to get them to read a book, even if you throw the book on their heads, they're not going to read it, right? They have to actually engage in a different process. It's so there are real differences in the process of in, in the creative process, depending on what domain you're looking at. And so mm-hmm. I would think that if people want to get into um, doing more creative activities, they probably want to pay a little attention to that as well, that um, some things come. So the process of discovery is faster. I think if you're if you're on, on one hand, for instance, writing, we've all been trained to write. And be, you know, yeah. we don't read, so you have an upper hand there, right? You can already start. So you could start with little, I don't know, limericks if you want, um, mm-hmm. but, or little haikus. Think, it doesn't or have to journaling. be something. Journaling. I always journaling. say to people to journal. Oh, yeah. Just speak about, write about your day. And if you want to throw that in the bin afterwards, that's okay. But just write about your day for you and you only. And you're not looking for an end result. You're writing about your day for the joy of doing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's exact. I mean, that's completely something that would be simple to do in terms of, yes, mm-hmm. you're recounting something. If you want to try and create something new, you can also do it at a smaller level, right? Start with something small, a, a format that is small. It could be a little sketch. It could be anything. Um, or a coloring book. Or co- <laughs> yes, I mean, a lot of people use that um, for rehab as people well. People who are scared, yeah. people who are frightened, a lot of people are terrified because they think I'm not creative because a teacher told them years ago and the first thing they feel safe to do is to use a coloring book because they know I can't go outside the lines because the lines are already there yeah and yeah. it's it's an okay first step I think for someone who's who's frightened I think it's confidence. important to you know I think there's that there's a grill again the process of discovery of materials that you can use like visual arts are really great that way because yeah. whether it's coloring it's just the if you're trying to color with different types of uh, materials right whether it's chalk or whether it's a crayon mm-hmm. or whether it's a pencil it has a different effect and there's something about doing it that is a process a, a mini process of discovery but perhaps but the feel of the of the of the the drawing implement against the material that you're using is kind of fascinating because you, it's yeah. not something you kind of you, and you can see that with kids you know when you give them something that they're not used to um and suddenly like oh this this feels different this is interesting this is coming yeah. off of my fingers that is there's mm-hmm. there's i think people just need to sort of realize that the joy of discovery discovering something that was unexpected right that there mm-hmm. is something and this and this is why something like gossip or something might be interesting for us again this is mimicking the the yeah. process of discovery um but Ultimately, it's because we're primed to enjoy discovering, to novelty, to discovering something new, to making new connections. Um, and it can be exploited for, in, in other, our attentional systems can be exploited in, in ways that are counter to our own interests by, you know, um, as, as you see sometimes with social media and so on. But ultimately, yeah. it's there, it's, you know, it's there for a really good purpose, which is, uh, noticing notice and then the, the thing about drawing is that you start to notice things when you start to notice um we do these sometimes when they do these workshops we do drawing exercises where we tell people to draw the same thing but then first we give them like 30 seconds and then we give them mm-hmm. I don't know, two minutes 
and then give them five minutes. And every time they do the drawing, of course, and every time they, they just look at the object differently. They're noticing yes. more details. They notice angles and, and little shadows. And there's and when people are talking, that, they're just so much joy in just seeing things in you. Um, and so it, these are sort of things that are in anybody's grasp. You know, the, the and what, what you mentioned there as well, Anna, is actually quite helpful. So if you'd say to somebody, you know, you set up a still life, um, you know, a, a vase and some fruit mm-hmm. and you say, draw that, that can be very frightening to people. But if you say to them, draw that in 60 seconds, yeah. people are more willing to do it because. Yeah, yeah. it's the, playful the, the, the to ex- start with. Anyway. It's playful. It's fun. There, there's restrictions. And the thing is, too, you know, if someone says to you, draw that in 60 seconds, you know, the end result is going to be shit anyway. <laughs> and when that is the case, the fear of failure isn't there. And it's one of the first exercises when I studied art college, when I went to art college, we would have a still life model in the class. Mm-hmm. And that's very intimidating. Draw this human and everybody else is drawing the other human and you're going to compare how good each of your drawings are. Yeah. But the first class was we have this this person is going to change poses every, every five minutes and you have to try your best to describe what you see every five minutes. And once that happens, you stop worrying about what's good or bad very quickly because the parameters have changed and then you're entering flow easier. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It doesn't matter. It's more. In some ways, you become more practical about it, mm-hmm. and so that removes all inhibitions, and it just becomes like, oh, this is a game, and games are great. Like it's it's a little, mm-hmm. it's it's not about right or wrong. It's not about yes. skill, really. Somehow, it's more about, it's about fun. It's about fun, right? That's why and curiosity. Mm-hmm. Or write a poem in sixty seconds. Yes. Like you're saying, you know, you you enjoy writing poetry. But sometimes, you know, block can come in because you're concerned about, oh, this has to be good. Yeah. But if someone says, write a poem in 60 seconds, then that's it. Like, I, I do a thing at the moment. Um, I use a, a website called Twitch, which is a live streaming website. And what I do is I play a video game on Twitch, but I also have musical equipment with me. So I try and write as many songs in an hour as I can to the events of the video game. (laughs) And what this does is it's impossible to fail because what I'm doing is making songs for the sake of making songs. And no one expects them to be good because the parameters have changed. It's he's writing songs about a video game live and it's (laughs) process based. And that for me is wonderful because I get an hour of flow every week that's. That's makes me just feel wonderful yeah that's and that's I, th- I think you know that you can see that you know you you found a way to do something that's within your grasp and not and the, the yeah. main thing about creativity is that whenever people say not everybody's creative and they people need to realize a they're talking about another magnitude they're talking about the level mm-hmm. of i don't know einsteins and and you know people who you recognize as having clear artistic talent and that the reason we think everything is so out of our reach is because of that like your teacher might have told mm-hmm. you, your teacher who knew nothing told you you couldn't draw but yeah. um the main thing is to realize that you're you're being robbed a little bit of the simple pleasures um that you can give yourself at yeah at zero cost um the simple pleasures that give you just so much benefit in terms of a just improving your mood giving you a positive sense of yourself and to do things that are in your grasp. And sometimes it might help to have people around. So some people, you know, 
people do again back to physical fitness people train better sometimes with friends right like they go out and, mm-hmm. and do something like that charades charades oh yeah that's such fun that's yeah. creativity that's creativity we all engage in it's very enjoyable there's no right or wrong but you're expected to think laterally in the moment absolutely yeah and it's just thro- it's again an, another situation where you have very little time you're thrown into a situation where you have to make sense and and deliver like do something meaningful in a very short period of time and it doesn't matter if you make a fool of yourself or you know it it all of that just goes so if you know if you know what the constraints are that are preventing you from doing something um then try to work around them or find ways in which you can diffuse the situation so mm-hmm. that it becomes really more about just people having fun for themselves um you mentioned earlier uh, autism Mm. And I'm currently going through uh, the diagnosis for autism in my 30s. Um, right. There's a, it just a, a, a lot of, uh, I don't want to say red flags, but a lot of things about how I relate to people, how I think my specified interests uh, may well be on the autistic spectrum. So I'm going through that process at the moment. Okay. And one thing I'd like to ask about, and a lot of people on the internet asked about, is is there a relationship between people who are autistic or ADHD or neurodivergent and creativity Gosh. is there a relationship between those two things and have you seen it in your work yes I have <laughs> but yes yes I have to always be careful when we say these things but of course um, essentially because of course there are so many ways in which one can be neurodivergent and these yeah. sort of it's important to understand that these classifications change very often sometimes they become yeah. So loose, so as to be I, either or not. I think we've gone from an era where nothing was really recognized properly to yeah. everything is being um, recognized almost too soon sometimes. So th- there are issues mm-hmm. with how we come to recognize and classify and give labels. And so that's that's important to, to be aware of. So a lot of our research that might be quite old, you have to keep in mind that the current labels may not, you know, like they might be a little different now in terms of how you would examine yeah. it. But so the the link between it's kind of what I, how I got into creativity is because I was very curious about the association, you know, the 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 madness creativity yes. link, um, and I sort of wanted to. I was always interested in uh, mental illness. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. sure where that stemmed from, but I think part of it was that I did a lot of volunteer work when I was. Uh, an undergrad and I was around a lot of people even growing up who was clearly there were you know issues but mm-hmm. I did notice in that there was something about certain groups where it wasn't it was clear that there was another side to the story but it was just yeah. my impression I mean you of course when you read any you know the, it's 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 an age-old sort of link since you know ancient Greece, the idea that there's an association between certain forms of um, mental illness, like um, I think they focused very early on on depression was the big thing th- mm-hmm. then that they focused on um, and creativity and so much and a lot yeah. of it was because the creativity was really seen as a gift from the gods in some sense yes. and that um, I mean the reasoning behind it kind of keeps changing over the ages but very often you could be you know, you could get both sides. You could get the gift as well as the curse, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is um, you get to see the truth, but no one's going to understand you. <laughs> so you're going to be tortured yeah. your entire life. Or the so there was there was this idea that sort of like what we experience in the flow state very often that this is coming from 
it's coming from within, but also not within. And it's just coming out there. I'm seeing things that I never thought mm-hmm. possible. Um, a lot of the ancient cultures attributed this to spirits outside oneself, right? And and yes. gods and so on. So in, in some ways it take, took away from the pressure one felt um, when trying to create because it was not inside you, it was outside you. I think Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in great detail about how artists... <laughs> Um, a long, long time ago, had less um, stress as a result because it wasn't mm-hmm. about their genius. It was about being sort of the genius. A conduit for God. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so with that came uh, other things that conduits that are there, that are um, inc- the things that would like push you into um, perhaps um, developing mental illnesses and so on. So my my, mm-hmm. my work sort of looked at I uh, looked at schizophrenia mainly mm-hmm. uh, but also ADHD and mm-hmm. of course I've I've read a lot about all of this in this field and I, I write about it extensively so the what matters is that so first of all there's no simple relationship I would say mm-hmm. um this it's a very chicken egg situation because mm-hmm. it's very clear that some in our modern society, again, I can't speak of, you know, how things were looked at earlier, but let's say in the past 50, 60 years, when we look at data from there, we can say that there are interesting trends that are remarkable and that can't be swept aside. So there's a lot of sort of birth registry data from Scandinavia. Um, They have systems where they record essentially all your information from birth to death. So Mm -hmm. you can find out what the average birth rate was, or the or birth weight, sorry, was of child's mm-hmm. children born in 1950, whether if you were born in the winter compared to the summer, where there was more likelihood of certain types of, you know, diseases occurring, mm-hmm. uh, premature births, so on and so forth. So they have these huge registries that allow you to do, to examine patterns and data. And so there was, I think Simon Kiaga is his name. He does, has, does most of the studies in relation to creativity using birth registry data. And he sh- has a ton of uh, papers now on this, as well as a book, I think. Um, and he found that, so he looked at if you were, if you had a specific um, mental disorder, yeah, like mm-hmm. schizophrenia, were you more likely to be in a creative profession? Was your parents more likely to be in a creative profession? Were your siblings? And so on and so forth. So not just you, as not just the person itself, but also their relations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that um, unipolar depression was not associated with any um, higher likelihood of being in a creative profession. So what is unipolar depression? That means, oh, sorry. That means just sort of um, acute, severe depression. With So the comparison was between bipolar disorder, depression, and schizophrenia. Those are the three mm-hmm. major um, severe um, mental disorders that he was focusing on. And what he so s- is unipolar depression like the depression that somebody would get because they're speaking negatively to themselves or because of uh, life events rather than something happening in the brain? No, I think it's a ladder because it's sort of it's. I mean, it's it's usually would be linked to some form of neurochemi- neurochemical okay. insufficiencies. And yeah. very often, you know, is associated with suicide. It's really acute depression mm-hmm. um, that is very, very, um, it's a very severe condition and it's very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no association. So the age old link between depression is probably one of the reasons to look at this is it was not found in relation to depression in the modern era, at least. But 
um, there was an association with bipolar disorder. So if a person was more likely to be in a creative profession and all their next of kin first degree relatives were more likely to be in a creative profession if they had bipolar disorder in the case of schizophrenia it was only ex- the advantage if you want to call it that only extended to your next of kin in the first degree mm-hmm. but not to the person suffering themselves right so that you have wow. so you have these association data that says well that's interesting so then you have the other side of the coin which is to say well a lot of the time when people are suffering from these sorts of you know severe conditions what happens is that you're not you might not be in the position to get the kind of other other sorts of jobs you're much more likely to yeah. go into artistic professions because other jobs are not open to you yeah and so so that's why i said it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation that you're not mm-hmm. sure if it really gives an advantage on the creativity side or whether it's a matter of well um this no other professions are open to them a third thing of course is that these professions are very hard professions to be extremely successful and productive in um yeah. it's these are very very you know uh, a creative professional is someone who has to deal with a lot of instability um they're more likely to have part-time jobs they're much less likely mm-hmm. to have like um they're much more likely to be swayed by anything that happens in the economy so in uh, covid for instance yeah absolutely tanked the creative arts pretty much all yeah. over the world um and, and you got to be in the top 10% to get even get recognized exactly right it's it's brutal the competition so the, those kinds of stresses are huge risk factors for developing um yeah major mental disorders as well so there is so that's again another one of these chicken and egg things like if you is it is it being part of that profession that leads to these issues and there's there is some i forget his name really early evidence looking at sort of trawling through sort of historically creative periods right so when people look at the renaissance for instance it was a kind of unique mm-hmm. period for the arts because artists were treated very very well could earn yeah. very well and there was sort of interesting ways in which the arts were commissioned so for instance if they had mm-hmm. a competition for well we want to put a sculpture in front of this building and we're going to get 10 artists to work on it and submit their work and one person mm-hmm. will win the person who won still won and only their art went but all the artists were paid yes for their effort very important right? paid for effort yeah so for me personally over the past 2 years lockdown was terrible for my creativity yeah. specifically I because really of what you mentioned the there spontaneity so of I speaking really to a stranger the spontaneity of, of to my creativity speaking to a stranger and when i was stuck because of the same four walls all my creativity experience and when i was stuck block. with the same four walls actually that's the last question i want to ask you anna yes what is creative block what does it look like for, from uh, as someone who studies creativity creative block is is a huge enemy to me and when creative block happens I'm not just not creating art and not access in flow but my mental health suffers massively if I can't create. Yeah. What is creative block? Well, a block is usually when well it's just an obstacle to your ability to be generative in the manner that you want to be generative whether it's composing mm-hmm. a piece of music or writing or I think block happens less in the visual arts than it does for writing and I think that's that's yeah. it just because with visual you can mess around you might be unhappy with what you're the producing process. the process is immediate and direct and you can get into it but with, with music as well um the with w- writing 
Writer, that's why it's called writer's block. Exactly. Writing is fuck. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. if I get blocked, I'm not writing. And it's very hurtful yeah. to, to sit down and for no words to appear or for the words that do appear to be ones that come from my closed mode of thinking. Yeah. As soon as I think about block, then I'm in the closed mode. I'm critical and I can't access flow and I feel terrible. Yeah, and I think this is what I was sort of saying earlier. The creative process is different depending on the specific practice that you look at, right? So creative, mm-hmm. so blocks definitely ex- is something that writers experience. And I think even songwriters do at some times. Yeah, you know? so, um, especially when they need that next hit. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I mean, I just look at songwriting and think this must be really hard. So a lot of like great songwriters will write about, let's say, the struggles that they experience or whatever. And then the whole life changes when they get really famous or very good. Yeah. And suddenly you have less access to a lot of the source material that you would normally have access to where you're struggling, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that that must be that I, I see is that there might be different reasons for blocks happening. And for if in the case of songwriters who especially get to be very, very successful, um, you occupy a different space now that is that is that is a space of comfort mm-hmm. from which it and is much harder adoration. to have yes. oh adoration. Adoration yes. is oh very God. dangerous. Adoration is very who, dangerous. And that's Kurt someone Cobain who, in particular like Kurt that was Cobain in particular that was a huge issue. He was being adored and he was being adored of that adoration really hurt him and it hurt his creativity. Yeah. And I think people said they're the sense your sensitivity gets blunted and people who are very aware of the creative process this can be torture for them and i think with with um writing a book and so it's much much worse because just the the task in front of you is so enormous and you can't mess around as much as if you're a songwriter you can still try to like stimulate your senses by playing on an instrument or go you know things like that trying to get together with people and just just have you know have a bit of a jam session or something you can try to trick your way out of it with writing it's less so i try automatic writing automatic writing really stuck like if i'm really stuck i'm typing and i'm typing and i'm not thinking about what i'm typing and that's when i think that's the closest thing to picking up a guitar and i mean the work of alice flaherty is probably she's written a great book called the midnight's disease it's all about creative block and the opposite oh lovely the opposite hyperlexia um, which is the incredible drive to want to just write. Like every m- waking moment you have, s- s- you know, th- to spend, even if it's a minute, um, people who are hyperlexic will tend to start off. It's, it's just a state-based thing. It's not really a, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like people suffer from bouts of hyperlexia. And she has this theory of creative motivation and about how, so, and she experienced it firsthand. So it's a great book because it really, captures what a block is like what hyperlexia is like and how both can be incredibly painful things to go through and how it has to do with sort of um the brain systems that are involved with creative motivation and how um so you know dopaminergic systems and so on and she gets Mm -hmm. into it it's it's a sort of a poetic scientific book which is very rare to come across um but it's this thing about the drive, even if you're hyperlexic, it's not that you're necessarily writing anything that's good. <laughs> it's just that you have yeah. this, ab- you're just spurting out words um, because you need to talk. You need to get that all mm-hmm. out of your system. Um, with There are very famous cases of writer's block, right? Like, so um, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Very famous for being, ah, uh, what's his name? Arthur? Not his name. Uh, no, 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 no. Arthur? Arthur? 
what's his name? Bollocks. God, yeah. But <laughs> this is we embarrassing. We know, we know this who embarrassing. we're talking about. Yeah, but okay. I'm just blocking on names today. Um, so it's... So he was renowned for his writer's blocks and so, so much so that his publishers would like lock him into a into mm-hmm. like a hotel room for a month on end and then he'd be required to produce pages. Douglas so, Adams. There we go, Douglas Adams. Um, I knew there was an A in there somewhere. Um, so he, it's, it's very hard to know what to do about it because it is very individual, how to get over mm-hmm. it and so on. So you found things that work for you. Very often it has to do with just the kind of pressures one puts on oneself in order to produce, you know, um, the pressures you might for be me, feeling. It's, it's my for ego. me, it's, it's, it's my ego. It's yes. ego. So yeah. ego. So the most harmful, the most thing, harmful for me thing for me as a creative, person, as a creative is person is any form, any un- form, <laughs> both positive both and negative, positive critique, and negative critique, critique are deeply yeah. harmful. Yeah. So that's, a, that's when interesting. I, if I, yeah. if I release a book and a bunch of people say, this is amazing, I love this. If I if I take that praise on and I start to internalize that as part of my self-worth, then it's a double-edged blade. Then the criticism, the negative criticism hurts as much. Yeah. And I know my creativity and my flow only comes from within. I have to write the book that I would want to read if I wasn't me. And if I try and create for anybody else, I will get blocked because I can't create for anyone else. It's a solitary act and it has to do with me and my sense of fun and play and being a professional artist is very difficult because your work is critiqued both positively and negatively so switching that off is a long tough process that requires a huge amount of self-care yeah it's very hard to a not be drawn to the positives and and also not to be drawn to the negative like you one can get very stuck on and one negative comment I could see a thousand positive comments in that one negative comment one negative comment and that's common every artist says that every artist says that absolutely so much of your blood sweat and tears into it that it feels any kind of act and it's an act of generosity writing I feel like when I look at it it's just mm-hmm. like you are being generous with your your thoughts and views to the world and the sort of slights that can come in your way have yeah. have a way of knocking people off course and sometimes you can get so off course it's very hard to find your way back and it's a very slow painstaking process to mm-hmm. try and get your way back and usually the kind of things that I read about is a to first figure out what it is that's the obstacle and in your case, it, as you said, it's your your ego gets in the way and, and the ability to deal with that. Then figure out a way to try and avoid that. And ultimately, it's mm-hmm. about setting structure for your practice, which is hugely showing absolutely. up to work, which is a show up 100%. to your table, sit down, even if it's just an hour or two. At some point, it should be consistent. Like, I got myself be, an office. Know, to, I got, I got an myself an office. office. Oh, see, that's I got great. An office. Yeah. Oh, see, that's because, great. Like, yeah. literally... Like there literally, is a place that I go uh, there to, is a place to that I go to as if I'm an office worker, as if I'm an office where worker, I create. And this yeah. is where and I that's create. what I did, and yeah. that's and that's what I did, and that's to help me to a place where I can write and and enjoy it and feel like fun because nothing else happens in this space other than um not creativity but the act of trying because if I go in there and say I'm going to create today, then I won't. But I can always say I'm going to go into this office and today I will try. Yeah. And trying is, is very important because trying has no outcome. It's just process based. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he, um, 
who says uh, John Cleese really talks about this really well I think in terms of how yeah. to set up a practice and, and you identify how, getting your own getting a space in which you can work is a really important thing and he I'm trying to think of all the things he points it's space uh, time and time is there twice no, because oh, space so, is there twice or is the time is there twice yeah, maybe time is there no, twice <laughs> I forget yeah no space once and then time twice because time is so important because once you set up the space to create you have to tolerate the anxiety yeah. of not entering flow and that's that's where you have to in order to go from the closed way of thinking to the open way of thinking that's what requires the time so it's the ability to tolerate the frustration exactly so and leave then, it for as much time as possible for, carve out a space and time so a consistent spa- a space where you can write for instance a time in the day either every day or every two days whatever works that works and then stick time the third time is stick with it as long as you can till you absolutely yeah. use all the time you have available to work on it i think he also emphasizes playfulness and playfulness humor and, and no solemnity no yeah i love that it's just like abs- the solemnity is beautiful because <laughs> you don't think about solemnity but it's so true yeah. solemnity fucking destroys everything and and he also points out that solemnity serves no purpose it really doesn't it's true it only serves pomposity and power absolutely because if you look at where solemnity is most present it's most present in religion the judicial system the military <laughs> yeah these are all very solemn spaces where humor is not allowed yeah so solemnity has no place in the creative process yes and i i, I mean i couldn't agree more and I, it's interesting for me that he's you know as a practitioner he's come up with the best theory of the creative process i think and it's very it's, it's also thinking when you're blocked you have a lot of anxiety it's very hard to get mm-hmm. into a space where humor is possible so even when you carve yeah. out the space and time and time for yourself the pressure because when you're trying to write you say i don't want to put pressure but you are feeling pressure and you are feeling very humorless about the whole mm-hmm. thing and so somehow to try and work your way into feeling um feeling lighter you know that's that's really important and for different people it's different things and i think for me whenever i'm in a space where i'm feeling like i'm being really uncreative here or i'm just not i'm being too solemn i'm being too hard on myself i'm just not being in a i try to literally this is when youtube comes in handy for me i i would watch something that makes me laugh and usually it's comedy mm-hmm. it's usually stand up comedy mm-hmm. um because it's sort of smart and witty and funny and it just snaps me out of that funk that i might be in yeah and it's just a temporary it's a little like lift before i get started on something which is again it's it's nice to see people doing something creative and f- so something like comedy especially stand up yeah. is is extremely smart it's extreme if it's done well it's extremely smart it's extremely wise it's extremely funny and it's extremely creative all, all in one and there are very few um situations where you can get a lot of Uh, what do you, what is it called a lot for very little um mm-hmm. so f- for me that's so, sort of something i do because i'm i'm writing a book now and it's excruciating process <laughs> because i have no time yeah. to really devote to it um and very often i'm like okay i i know this can work and i really enjoy the moment when i'm really writing well and feeling feeling mm-hmm. it, it there's nothing like it you know when you're really in that state of flow or when you're thinking oh this is a, this is an interesting insight to bring across for instance but to get there i have to let it's like letting all of the you know feel a bit straight jacket and it's like letting all opening out all those buckles like letting yourself like yeah. loose letting the muscles stop being tense and just be loose um breathing a little bit a lot of 
people will do sort of some some form of guided imagery before because they can't get out of it. And, you know, there are lots of apps. A lot of them are free, I think, online where you can sort of do a three minute sort of get out of my sp- get out of my headspace and get out of your own headspace yeah. <laughs> um uh, uh, allow things to happen so I, I think for it's very individual what might work for one will not work for another what i what i do um um is is uh, that's so after so i've added an, an extra step to jankley's process so oh, after after fun i intru- uh, for me i try to fail so if fun isn't working I deliberately try to fail because it's the fear of failure and my own ego that's preventing the creativity so I think of the worst idea I can possibly think of <laughs> and I go with it yeah and that's what works for me it's quite genius and then yeah. if that fails I, I go back to the surrealists and I use random input mm-hmm. so that's when I use cut up techniques or I just go into Google images and look for random images yeah and allow the computer to feed me random inputs and I just try and create at these random inputs but trying to fail that's very important like literally what's the worst thing I could do right now what's a terrible awful idea let's do it let's write about that because that's what I'm scared of let's do it and often some of my best ideas come from like I wrote a short story about a girl who moves to Barcelona and she becomes legitimately convinced that her next door neighbour is Donald Duck. <laughs> and I was good. just going, that's a ter- <laughs> terrible, terrible. What an awful book. What no. a terrible book. And I, di- I did it. And I was so pleased with the end result. I was thrilled. I was like, wow, this is really creative. This ticks all my personal boxes. And it's a 2,000 word story about a girl who thinks that her neighbour is Donald Duck. <sighs> Only because I did that that they end up with that story because I'm like that's fucking stupid what a silly idea let's do it yes yes that's great I, I think what you mentioned about associativeness is important like if you can push yourself to connect unusual things even a little exercise like that it's it kind of loosens your associative strengths of, of your conceptual yeah. networks and that's also hugely helpful and I have got to read that story because it makes me chuckle Thank just you. thinking I, I, about I, I, it <laughs> Um, thank you so much for your time there, Anna, because we're two hours there. Oh, wow. Um, Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was such a wonderful conversation. Um, I learned tons about creativity, but just speaking to you as a person, it was just such a lovely, lovely conversation. And thank you so much for that. I really have enjoyed this. So thank you for having me on your show. So that was my chat with Anna Abraham. Check out her stuff at AnnaAbraham.com. I'll catch you next week. Maybe I'll have a hot take. Just to let you know, there'll be no Twitch stream this week. I'll be back next week because I am working this week away from my studio so I can't do my Twitch stream. Dog bless you all. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. Tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.